Well, good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? We're all right? Good. So, um, last week we began our year-long journey um, through the story of the Bible. And we um, began, as you might expect, in the book of Genesis. And um, we heard about God's intention um, for humanity, for, for people to live in perfect relationship with him in a perfect creation and being part with him of, of bringing his perfect order to the end of the earth. And we heard about how we rejected that and about how ever since then, ever since our rejection of relationship with God, we became uh, in bondage, we became trapped in our own sinfulness, but that God set about um, um, outworking a plan to restore us into relationship with himself, to restore us to what we were made for. Uh, and the story of the Bible is very much that story. And so um, we heard about Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and how God repeatedly made promises to each of them that through them and their descendants, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That God would restore his plan to have people in relationship with himself through which he could extend his blessing to the ends of the earth. And um, the story, of course, um, ends in um, Genesis with the story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Remember Joseph who had the dreams um, and, and how Joseph was, his brothers became jealous of him and he was sold into slavery and off he went to Egypt. But God raised him up and God actually used him to save not only the nation of, of, of Egypt, but actually all his brothers and his father and their family came down from um, Canaan down to Egypt and they were rescued too. And the book of Exodus, where we are this week, very much picks up from where Genesis um, left off. Um, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 12 to 14, if you turn there with me, Genesis 15, 12 to 14, we read this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions." And then in Exodus, if you turn there, Exodus chapter 1, and from verse 6, it says this. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Exodus is made up of a mixture of narrative, that story and law. And it roughly falls into two halves. And in this story section at the start of Exodus, we very much, as I said, pick up from where Genesis left off. And there have been 400 years and Israel is now under bitter and harsh treatment in Egypt, oppressed as slaves um, in Egypt. And this book very much tells a story of how God delivers his people, rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And God does that through a person, and he's very much, um, you know, the, the, the centerpiece, if you like, the central figure of this story. God rescues his people through Moses. But we would be mistaken to think that this book is all about Moses. This book is not about how Moses delivered the people of Israel. This book is about how God rescued the people of Israel. And he did that through a person. And so Moses gets some credit because God chooses him and uses him. But you only have to read the story to realise that Moses had a go himself before God got hold of him. And that didn't end too well. He ended up fleeing for his life and hiding for many years. It was only after God called him and promised to use him, and began to empower him and enable him, that he was able to be part of something spectacular that God was doing in his nation. Now, I'm um, trying to give a summary of all that happens in the book of Exodus, just like Genesis and, and many other books in the Bible. It's a pretty um, challenging task, but there's an amazing website that I want to make sure you all know about called thebibleproject.com. It's a fantastic resource and there's loads of videos there and actually we're going to watch one of those videos together now and it's going to give us a summary of the first half of the book of Exodus. So let's um, turn to the screen and watch that together. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So 
Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now, as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great, but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. It's really helpful, isn't it? Um, thebibleproject.com really recommend um, we're, we're on no sense of commission um, but all free resources um, for you to use I think they have a, a, a thing where you can donate to the project that they're doing but it's all available um, for free so I'd really recommend that you um, go and have a look at that so pausing there then for a moment after those first um, 18 chapters let's think 
about what has happened um, so far. Can you see how actually all of this history, and, and it's real history, it's real stuff that happened in the lives of real people, but how all of that history is actually paving the way and pointing towards something amazing that God wants to do in our world and for his people. You see, all of us were in slavery. All of us were in slavery to sin. Sin was our master right from the very beginning when we as humanity, as men and women, chose. I know sometimes we we say, don't we, or sometimes we feel, well, hang on a minute, this is a bit unfair. I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't eat from the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. But we were perfectly represented in Adam and Eve. They were the mother and father of, of us all. We were perfectly represented in them. And, and when they fell, it was humanity, it was humankind, it was us who fell. And we've been trapped in bondage. Try as hard as we might, even with our best efforts. And some people make some really great efforts to do good things in the world. But actually, ultimately, we're trapped. We're in bondage to sin. And it is a really harsh slave master. You see, sin will not let you go. Sin will never give you up unless it is made to. Sin will always try to lure you back in. Sin wants to totally dominate humanity. But God loved us so much that he was not prepared to allow his people to remain in slavery. God loved it. This is what he's showing us through this amazing story that actually happened through the lives of real people that really existed. But he's showing us something spectacular and amazing that, that God, our God, is not prepared to allow his people to be oppressed and remain separated from him in slavery, but that he will deliver them. And this is what the great story of the Bible is actually all about. How God is setting his people free from all that would keep them separate from him so that they can be restored into his presence and have the relationship that they were made for. And there's so much drama in this story. When you read the book of Exodus, it is so full of drama. In fact, they even made a film about it. Have you seen it? The Prince of Egypt. In fact, I think they've made several films about this story because it is so packed full of drama. You see, God didn't just rescue his people with a word. I mean, he could have done that, right? Because he's God. So God can say, let there be light and there is light. Yeah? God can say, let there be and there is. And whatever your view on how that actually outworked and and happened, it happened at the command of God. So God can speak and it happens. So God could have said, let my people be free and it would have happened. But God chose to work this mighty act of deliverance. In fact, you will find nine times in the book of Exodus this expression, with a mighty hand. With a mighty hand. Now hang on a minute, God doesn't actually have hands. Does he? Because he is spirit. Yeah? He, he became flesh in the person of Jesus, but he is spirit. Yeah? So God doesn't have hands. And so the Bible's trying to 
reveals something important to us here with a mighty hand. In fact, one time it says with an outstretched arm. And then in Deuteronomy, um, those phrases get put together. And five times we read with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivered his people. Because it was important to God that it took effort. It didn't have to take effort because he could have just spoken the word. But God loved you so much that he went to great lengths to deliver you. He delivered you in a mighty and powerful way. He triumphed over the enemy that would keep you separate from him. He didn't just speak, him, um, speak gently and, uh, and have the victory. He, he fought and won a mighty decisive victory over the enemy that would keep you apart from him. You see, one of the other things we learn here is that the judgment of sin is a good thing. Because sometimes we feel uncomfortable, don't we? We feel uncomfortable when we read some of the detail of what happened in the book of Exodus. And we feel uncomfortable when we hear about the wrath and the punishment and the judgment of God. And how can our God, who is so loving and kind and merciful, how can he do punishment? But don't you understand that sin is the thing that keeps you from him? Sin is the thing that keeps the object of his desire and affection from him, that keeps his children from him. And what loving parent wouldn't do all that they can to protect and release from bondage and slavery those who are kept apart from them? And so actually when God wins this massive, wonderful, mighty, decisive victory over his enemy, it is an expression of his love. Because sin keeps you from him. And so when he judges sin, he's judging what keeps you apart from him. And we want wickedness and evil to be removed from this world. Now, of course, what this story shows us is that actually if, if, if God was to remove all wickedness and evil and nothing changed in us, then that would inevitably lead to us being taken out of the picture as well. So God makes a way for us, his people, to be rescued. By the blood of a lamb, he says, you can be protected from my judgment on sin and wickedness and evil. If you will apply the blood of the lamb to your life, then as I judge that which keeps humanity apart from me, you can be delivered and rescued and set free so that you can have the relationship that I long for with you. And of course, we will go on to see in the New Testament that that lamb is Jesus Christ. And God makes the blood of that lamb freely available to all people who will accept it so that they can be delivered and set free from their bondage to slavery. It's an amazing story. And then God leads his people out of this slavery and he leads them and they arrive at the Red Sea. Now the Egyptians, their oppressors, Sin, our slave master, suddenly decides, hang on a minute, our slaves are getting away. And so the Egyptians begin to pursue them and they pursue them to the edge of the Red Sea. Now the Israelites, they're there and they haven't seen the Prince of Egypt. Okay, they haven't seen the film and they've not read their Bibles, not because they're bad, but because it's not been written yet. So, so they've not read their Bibles, so they don't know what's about to happen because we all go, oh, it's all right. The sea's going to open up and you're going to go through and you're going to be fine. They don't know that. 
They've never seen sea opened up before with like curtains of water. I love that moment if you've seen the Prince of Egypt when you see like a whale swimming past um, the curtain of water. Um, It's an incredible story, but they don't know that that's about to happen. And sometimes you find yourself up against a situation and you've no idea. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know God can do anything, but you don't understand because this one's really impossible. But what you've got to understand is that was impossible. Because no one had ever seen sea opening before. No one had ever heard of that. They were an impossible situation. Their slave masters were pursuing them. They're right up there against the edge of the Red Sea. There is no way forward. There is no future for them. The slave masters are coming after them. And they by now, by the way, have made them really mad. They've made them really mad because not only have they, are they grieving the loss of their firstborn, but they've actually just been plundered of all their possessions as well. So here are the Israelites and they're like trying to stuff away and hide all the Egyptians kind of like possessions because the Egyptians are coming after them and they're at the edge of the Red Sea and there is no way forward. And you can tell me as much as you like, Richard, you don't understand. In my situation, there really is no way forward. In their situation, there was no way forward. But let me tell you this, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. God can always make a way when there seems to be no way. And so through Moses, his servant, who lifts up his staff, the waters are parted. And the Israelites move through on dry ground. I bet it was kind of a bit nerve-wracking the first few as they went through. And probably then they kind of grew in confidence. And it's like, all right, yeah, cool. And they probably enjoyed the scenery as they walked past. But then the Egyptians are not giving up. You see, sin will not give up. It will do all that it can to pursue you and hold you down and hold you back and keep you locked up. And so the Egyptians are following through into the sea. And the Israelites come through and they make it to the other side. And God closes the water. And God's people are finally separated from the enemy who would seek to bring them back into slavery. And do you know what the New Testament teaches us? That is a picture of what happened when you got baptized in water. That God rescued you from your bondage, from your slavery to sin. But not only that, when you came up out of the waters, the waters closed behind you and separated you from your enemy. If you've not been baptized in water, I want to tell you, it is an incredibly powerful thing. It's an incredibly powerful thing. It is a means of God's grace into our lives so that we can be separated, so that we can apply what God has done for us, what we're receiving by faith. It's an act of faith. It's a faith declaration that says God is separating me, is cutting me off from my enemies. There is nothing in my past that can have any power or hold over me any longer because God has separated me from that old slave master that would seek to pursue me. Isn't that a wonderful and amazing story? How God delivers his people so powerfully, so mightily, because he loves us so much. So we're going to watch the second video.
because only the first half of the book of Exodus is this wonderful and amazing story. But they didn't carry on the film, The Prince of Egypt, to give all the details of how to build a tabernacle. Let's watch this. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence, because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. They had this close relationship with him, and it was good. But humanity rebels, and the relationship is fractured, and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations, and that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them, and it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. that It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because there's a lot of them and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right, and so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is 
A really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something? Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. If nothing else, I really hope that this um, series just whets in you an appetite to get into God's Word. It's so amazing how the different books and stories of the Bible all fit together to tell us this amazing story of what God has done to make us his own. So God rescues his people from slavery, but what God is showing us here is that he rescues his people from slavery, not just so that they can say, yippee, we're free now, which is pretty cool. Um, And Moses and and, and Miriam have a pretty good go at that, singing, yippee, we're free now. Um, And you can read that in in the Bible. Um, But actually, God rescues his people so that they can live faithfully in covenant with himself. And this idea of covenant is so important that God gives so much of his story in the Old Testament to helping us to understand it. Now, the nature of that covenant is going to change in the New Testament. We're going to get a new covenant. But there are principles about living in covenant with God that God expressly reveals to us in the Old Testament. And this is all about having a people who will live faithfully and obedient to him because covenant is all about defining the terms of a relationship. And God in covenant says, I am going to be faithful to you. And you can depend on me in this relationship. But covenant also puts obligations on us. So there are terms to this relationship. You have to live like this and I will do this for you. And so God calls his people to live faithfully in covenant with him. And the purpose of that is actually because God wants to reveal to the world around what he is like who he is, how good he is, how loving he is, how powerful he is, how awesome he is. And so the whole intention is that God, through this people that he's calling to himself, will put himself on display to the world all around. Remember, the promise is that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so that's why he says, you will be for me a chosen people, a special treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. It says in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, people who live under my rule and who manifest, who represent, who minister my presence to the world around them. Because living in covenant with God, living faithfully in obedience to him, It's all about us enabling his presence and his glory to be made manifest in your workplace, in your home, in your street, in your neighborhood. 
Because it's easy, isn't it, to, to kind of picture these Old Testament stories of distant, far-off times and see them as somehow disconnected and remote. But actually, this is about what God wants to do today when you live, when you work, where you study He wants people to be able to see what it looks like to live faithfully in covenant with God. He wants people to be able to see what it looks like to be free from slavery to sin and to be in intimate relationship with God. He wants people to be able to see his power and his glory being made manifest and put on display in the lives of his people. It's amazing what God has done and how he's worked through human history. And of course, this Old Testament story is just a shadow. It's just a shadow compared to what he is pointing towards. Do you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? Just going to read you a few scriptures as we bring this to a close. 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, and from verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory. He's referring to what we've just heard about when those commandments were given to Moses. So so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious, referring back to what happened in the book of Exodus, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if What was transitory came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. And even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Or in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and from verse 18. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 12 and from verse 18. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, referring to that mountain Sinai, And that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And so it goes on. 
And verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And our last scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is absolutely amazing. He loves us so much that he rescues us with a mighty hand. He goes to great lengths. He deliberately goes to great effort to decisively rescue us from our slave master of sin. And having rescued us, God calls us to live faithfully in covenant with him. And as we, as God's people, live faithfully in covenant with him, God will manifest his presence and his glory in us and through us as his people. Because this is the story of what God wants to do with his people. This is a story of what God wants to do in our lives. And this is the story that we're discovering together in the scriptures. Amen. God bless you.